Hey everybody, this is Tony, Dungeon Master for D&D Raw, and today I wanted to review the book Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Part of the reason I wanted to do this is mainly because we had our Jarlaxle review for our Rules is Written episode, in which we took a party's character and discussed what we liked about him and what made him just an interesting concept, and as well as what would happen if a player brought this character into a game. Now, for 5e, this is the first time that Jarlaxle has actually been statted. He has been mentioned in previous books, Out of the Abyss. However, in that book, there's absolutely no stats. There's just his personality type, which is swagger for days. Before I get into Jarlaxle, I wanted to go over the book itself. And as a module, it's levels 1 through 5. And honestly, like looking through it, it's really solid book. One of the benefits is, um, and I will try to mitigate spoilers as much as possible, but for the sake of it... If you intend to get it, play it, there are spoilers coming up. But one of the interesting things about the book, the very intro of it, there are four different villains to choose from. There are four different groups. The major villains are Xanathar, the Castle Anters, which are uh, nobles of Waterdeep, Bregendareth, Jarlaxle, uh, and the Zentarim, led by Manshun. Now, one of the cool things, and one thing I find interesting, is essentially you can have this one module be four different campaigns. The easiest thing to do is run them for four different people, but events change depending on the villain that you have. It even starts off with what season that you should be in during the book. So, for example, Bregendarth and Jarlaxel, the focus is on fall, whereas someone like the Zentrum or Manchun, the fo- focus is on winter. One of the things the book does mention is you can switch the villain if you realize about halfway through that maybe Manchun and the Zentrum aren't like the best villains right now for the party that you have, and you can have it be Jarlaxle and have things shift as now Jarlaxle is the main focus of what the party's trying to stop. In addition to this, there is a what I think is a great intro to put characters into the campaign by, one, there's a map of Waterdeep. So it's both helpful to you and helpful to the players. There's actually two different sides. One is supposed to be just the overarching map. The other has a few more details as to where specific places are for the DM. And one place, the great starting place and the starting place of most D&D type of campaigns, the party can meet in the tavern, the Yawning Portal. Now, the Yawning Portal itself, the, the intro to the campaign, you meet Volo, who starts you off on a little quest that will lead into the overarching campaign. There are also suggestions as to someone the characters might know in the tavern that you could give them, which I think is really cool because it helps to incorporate them into the world. Now, the other interesting thing about the book is it all takes place in Waterdeep. The whole setting is Waterdeep. One of the chapters in the book discusses Waterdeep itself and talks about like its brief history, a legal code, so the party needs to be really careful if they do anything illegal. And you can always show them what the laws are of the city because they actually have a a page at the back of the book called the Code Legal, which talks about the crimes and punishments for those crimes within the city. And of course, there's ways the book describes how you handle the party potentially getting arrested or uh, accused of crimes or anything like that. So really interesting overall that it all takes place within the city and the party never needs to leave the city because everything they would want to buy, anything they would want to do and for, as far as the quest goes, all takes place in Waterdeep itself. They talk about uh, some of the interesting things there, such as most of the people in the city are unarmored and unarmed because there's such a strong presence of the city watch that guard the streets 
that people feel like they don't need to be. There's all sorts of guilds that would be vying for the party's attention so that they can pay guild fees and get access to all of these other uh, bonuses that the guilds have to offer. Then there's the nobility that gets discussed throughout it, especially if one of the party members decides they want to do the noble background. There's They give you a few options to choose from. On top of that, you have all the different forces within the city, celebrations, and what days they take place, which can affect the storyline and what the party wants to do at given times. They have detailed descriptions of the different wards within the city, such as the sea ward, the trades ward, the dock ward, and uh, others beyond that. And a brief mention of Undermountain, which I know the next book will take place in, but they just touch on briefly for this. It also talks about the walking statues that are in the city, which are massive statues, but are also constructs and really, really cool. In addition to that, they talk about coinage if you want to focus on really being involved in RP for the city for things such as like a nib is equal to a copper. There's something called a shard, which is a silver the dragons are gold, sun is a platinum, and there's things like a towel, which is the equivalent of two gold, and a harbor moon, which is the equivalent of five platinum. They give phrases and uh, terminology and uh, idioms for what people in the city are like to give it a more realistic feel if you want to incorporate this into the campaign. Now, one of the last things I want to mention before I get into like the magic items and NPCs is as far as the villains go, the actual leader of each of these groups, you're not meant to kill. The party can actually go toe-to-toe with them, but really the whole purpose of this is to stop them from acquiring the treasure. And the boss of each of these groups is not trying to kill the party. They want to obtain the treasure, and sometimes maybe they will try to turn the party into acquiring it for them. They might kill some of the party members along the way, but some of them are evil and will do that. But overall, I actually think that's a really interesting take. The party will still fight villains and fight creatures and and deal with them. But the actual main villain, so someone like Xanathar or the Castellanters themselves or Jarlaxle, you're not meant to fight them. They're much stronger than the party is going to be by the end of the campaign, which is very, very interesting and very different from the way that uh, most of the other modules have it, where the villain that you're up against, of course, you are meant to kill. When in this case, you're just trying to stop them from achieving their goals. You never need to actually fight them and kill them. And fighting them is, in fact, a bad idea. Now, as far as magic items, part of the reason I wanted to mention magic items is they have about 12 magic items uh, in total in the book. One of them deals with like special magic items for the mass lords of Waterdeep, the Lord's Ensemble. They also have the Black Staff, which is an immensely powerful artifact. I don't want to go too much into what each individual one does, as that would take a good deal of time, but they are all interesting in and of themselves. The one thing I find really, really funny is there are uh, four magic items that are specifically crafted for Jarlaxle himself, based off of uh, the lore on Jarlaxle. And honestly, like looking back at him, like, yep, that's the only way that they could do it. Like they had to make these magic items just for him. So it's a third of the total magic items are specifically designed for Jarlaxle, and he has them on his person. One of the things that is actually really interesting, I find, uh, for their NPC and monster aspect of the book is most of the creatures here, most of the stat blocks are humanoids in some way, shape, or form, which one of the things that I actually really like, I'll throw monsters at parties and all that, but I like humanoids that are just strong rather than having to create like a homebrewed thing necessarily where 
you're trying to throw, well, I want the power of this cleric and I need to like build them up and get them all to this point and have these spells and this HP and you can average or roll or whatever. They have a lot of very strong humanoids in this, which, uh, which I really like. And finally, the main reason I was initially doing this is Jarlaxle statted out. Now, he's got an AC of 24. And my one complaint for this is I feel like it should be AC 25 because he has magical leather armor and not studded leather. And I feel like with as much time as he's had, he would have studded leather. But minor complaint on that considering. He also has suave defense allowing him to add his charisma to his AC. I also think his charisma should be a plus five and not a plus four. But again, little complaints on my end. Uh, he does have a supernatural dexterity of a dexterity of 22. That's just how he's able to get such a high AC. On top of that, he has 10 magic items on his person. And he's attuned to five of them, allowing him this special ability just for him, which I thought was really funny considering all the magic items he has. He is a master attuner, allowing him to attune up to five magic items. And those items can be meant for a sorcerer, warlock, or wizard as well. Allow him to bypass a lot of those restrictions on most of the classes. His basic build is kind of like that of a swashbuckler. So he's got his evasion. He's got his sneak attack. And he's a CR 15. And I think he's not higher because he has no resistances or immunities to anything. One of the interesting things is he does have a legendary resistance on only one. And he has three legendary actions that he can use per round. Now, as far as the items go, because... I mean, they describe how to play him, and throughout the book, he definitely has all of the swagger and all of the confidence that I love about this character. But then let's go to magic items. As far as that is, his magic items are the regular ones, a plus three leather armor. His uh, wide brim hat is still a hat of disguise. He has a cloak of invisibility, so a little bit different there. They don't have his boots of elven kind, like we mentioned in the previous episode. He does have a plus three rapier, which makes sense. They just, I am not surprised they didn't include his nice new fancy sentience weapon, but not too surprising as that would have been a whole mess onto itself and could have potentially led to some serious complications considering what they want to focus on here. They have his portable hole, which they don't mention, but is in the brim of his hat. And they have a wand of web. Now, my one complaint about this is they actually have a wand of viscous globs, which he's mentioned to have, but it's statted in out of the abyss. So my assumption is that they decided, as far as these go, not to repeat a magic item from a different module and just do the wand of web and make it a little bit easier. But the wand of viscous globs is nastier, and it is definitely the magic item described of him having. Now, they don't have his wand of illusions for his fireballs or anything like that. But going into the special magic items that are specifically built for him, there are bracers of flying daggers. So his illusory daggers that one out of the three are real. Instead, what they do is allow him to allow you to hurl two magically formed daggers and they disappear at the end of your turn. Whether you hurl them, whether it hits or misses, anything like that. So he can hurl two magical daggers at an opponent per turn. On top of this, he has a Ring of Truth Telling, one of the new magic items, allowing advantage on insight checks against a lie. My one complaint about this is that could be incorporated into his eye patch, which I will mention in a moment. But overall, like, okay, he is incredibly perceptive. He is incredibly insightful. That works fine for me. And then there is the Feather of Diatrima Summoning, which summons a Diatrima but uses Axe Beak stats. So it still describes the Diatrima, the colorful flightless bird, which in Axe Beak is a flightless bird. 
and a large creature that defends itself and obeys your commands. Uh, it's a one-per-seven-day type use. Now, last one I want to mention, his Knave's Eye Patch, which I just like the name. This gives him advantage on perception checks. Magic can't detect his thoughts. It can't detect if he's lying. And you can only communicate with him telepathically if he wants to. The other ability of this, which I find interesting because it hasn't really been mentioned in previous in previous editions as far as I'm aware, but it also removes his sunlight sensitivity. So basically, if you're a drow and you wear this and you have sunlight sensitivity, you now don't. And don't take that disadvantage on perception checks or on attack rolls while you're out in sunlight. One of the things I'm a little sad that it removed was the x-ray vision, which I would say there's no precedent for it, but there is a ring of x-ray. So it is an ability that could be had into the eye patch, and I almost wish they kept it in, but that is a really strong eye patch already, and I'm I'm assuming that the wizards didn't want to make it too powerful, considering that all it can do, especially with the not being able to read your thoughts type deal. Usually that mind blank spell is already an eighth level spell. One of the things I am a little bit sad about is usually he is a dual wielding fighter. They only focus on the rapier as well. They do have the magical daggers. They don't have his magical daggers that shift into short swords and then long swords and back and forth. He doesn't have a hand crossbow with sleeping poison either. He doesn't have his grappling hook earring or his breaking case of emergency earring, uh, which the breaking case of emergency earrings shifting you to just another plane of existence is kind of powerful, and I, I understand why they might not do that. They don't have his many-hued Puafui, that essentially is the cloak of elven kind, but also hinders ranged attacks. They don't have his brooch of shielding or his snake belt, and again, limited on the wands that he actually has. Basically, I do understand if they gave him all of these magic items, the party would want to try and kill him and take them all. (laughs) But with the amount of magic items that he does have, I am glad that at least they gave him that uh, master attuner ability to be able to focus on all of these different things. So while not exactly the way that he's described in the books... He is still a CR-15, incredibly strong for a humanoid, non-caster character, an AC-24, and being able to attune to up to five items, I think is still a really, really good NPC overall and a pretty good build on Jarlaxle, and I do understand why they limited a lot of his other magic items, but honestly, it's still a very strong build. Overall, uh, in conclusion, as far as the Waterdeep Dragon Heist book goes, I think it's a very strong book. It does a great job on building the city itself, on how being in the city is much different from just normal adventuring parties and adventuring locations. And overall, seems like a really interesting campaign, one that I'd be excited to play. Even if you don't plan on playing this particular book, the book itself is fantastic for helping to build a character from a city like this, especially if it's a noble or a far traveler, or a guild artisan, or something along those lines. And as a DM, it's great if you want to be able to get ideas on how to flesh out your cities within your own campaign worlds, your massive cities that have been established for centuries and have been there for a long time, helping you get an idea of what sort of defenses does the city have, what uh, sort of guilds would they have, taxes on the city, and stuff like that. Um, Another benefit I like of this book is, again, like I mentioned, 
these powerful humanoid NPCs that you could potentially borrow and reskin and with a couple tweaks here and there, use as your own powerful humanoid NPC in another campaign, rather than building up like a level 20 character and adding in the abilities from the player's guide, which again, you can still do. Just here's a quicker way to do it. <laughs> Anyways, thank you for listening to my review of Waterdeep Dragon Heist. So far, I think it's a fantastic book, one that is really interesting and being only level one through five campaign, a short one that I feel DMs might want to pick up and check out. Anyways, thank you again for listening, and I hope to see you next time.